Welcome to Trinity Forum Conversations. In this series, we're bringing together leading thinkers to ask one of life's most important, substantial questions. What does it mean to live wisely and well? We'll get expert insight on neurobiology, mortality, loneliness, the meaning of an intellectual life, and more. In this episode, we'll talk with Trinity Forum Senior Fellow, Lydia Dugdale. So why do we need finitude? Because if we're going to do any work, we need to have the goal in mind. Any project we undertake, we need to know what the end is of that project. And so if the project is very matter-of-factly preparing well to die, then we need to at least be able to name that we will die one day. And I'll tell you, it amazes me the lengths to which we go as a society to avoid that. This episode is an edited version of our online conversation from April of 2021. You can find the full video of that conversation on our website, ttf.org. And check out the show notes on this episode for links to further resources. Here's Cherie Harder. At most times, hosting a conversation around the grim topics of life, death, and dying may seem unusual, certainly countercultural, perhaps not always all that hospitable. It seemed fitting to offer a chance for such discussion and reflection on the finitude and frailties of our own nature, the inevitability of our mortality, and the hope before us and what it means to live and to die well. And to help us do that, I'm delighted to introduce our guest today, who has literally written the book on precisely that subject. Dr. Lydia Dugdale is an internal medicine primary doctor and a medical ethicist in New York City. She serves as, as an associate professor of medicine and the director of the Center for Clinical Ethics at Columbia University, and previously served as the associate director of the Program of Biomedical Ethics at Yale, where she was also the co-founding director of the Program for Medicine, Spirituality, and Religion at the Yale School of Medicine. She is also the author of The Lost Art of Dying, Reviving Forgotten Wisdom, which is a fascinating work around a mostly forgotten ethical tradition that emerged in response to the Black Plague of medieval times called the Ars Moriendi, or The Art of Dying, which we've invited her to discuss today. Lydia, welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be with you. It's great to have you here. So we're just going to dive in at the very beginning. The Ars Moriendi, this is not a commonly understood or heard term or concept. So to start us off, what is the Ars Moriendi? And why did a very busy clinical physician in New York City decide to write a book about it? Sure. So the Ars Moriendi is Latin for the art of dying, and it refers to a body of literature that developed during the aftermath of the mid-14th century bubonic plague outbreak that struck Western Europe. So think 1350s here, the plague is moving westward, came from what is, is probably China today, carried via rats and fleas, and it just decimated Western Europe. Historians estimate that perhaps as many as two-thirds of the population of Western Europe succumbed to this particular outbreak of plague. Now, plague was nothing new, and going back to antiquity, we have recordings of it, but this, this, this pandemic was destructive. And when society tried to collect itself in the aftermath of the bubonic plague, 
one of the first cries on the part of the people, one of the first petitions was that they be empowered to anticipate and prepare for death themselves. Now, keeping in mind the leading social authority in the 1300s and 1400s in Western Europe was the church. This is pre-Reformation, so it was sort of the Western church. And, and it was the priests, really, who were responsible for helping people prepare for death and then conducting last rites and the, the masses and the funeral preparations. All of that was under the authority of the priests. But the survivors of the plague said, hey, we need help here. We want to be able to do this ourselves. Not, not everything, but we want to be able to anticipate death and prepare for it. So for those that I'm not a church historian, but for those of you who know the history of the church in the West, you'll know that the late 1300s was not a particular, particularly favorable time for the church. There were two men and then later three men simultaneously claiming to be Pope. And so that meant that there was not really the, the infrastructure in place, if you will, to address the pastoral concerns, these very desperate needs, the petitions of the people. There was no one to address those. But when the church finally pulled itself together, resolved this leadership struggle in the early 1400s, one of its first items of business was to address this question of how to die well. And that led to the first iteration of the Ars Moriendi or Art of Dying handbooks, which became a series of handbooks that didn't just stay within Western Christianity, but were adapted and adopted and translated by many different cultures and, and cultural groups, religious and non-religious, such that by the late 1800s, oh, indeed the early 1800s, the, the preparation for death even in the United States, was just a part of what it meant to be brought up well. The historian Drew Faust, who's former president of Harvard University, she's written this lovely book on the Civil War. And she says, by the time of the Civil War in the United States, whether you were from the North or the South, attention to living well in order to die well was just part of life. Religious or not, this was something that people needed to attend to. So Sheree, you asked, why, <laughs> why would a doctor be interested in this? And, and the answer is, is that I have seen so many patients, my own patients included, die poorly. And what started out was even as a trainee, as a medical student, and then in the US anyway, we go from medical school to residency. So it's kind of a junior doctor, an apprentice doctor status. In, in, in those very early roles, I would witness time and time again, patients who were lingering in the intensive care unit with no hope whatsoever for ever getting out of the intensive care unit, but who either by their own stated wishes or their family's wishes wanted to, to cling to the technology of biomedicine that would, would maintain their vital functions, even without giving them a, a hope of, of life, of getting out of the hospital, a cure. And that seemed problematic because while as a doctor, I'm, I'm all in favor of the goods of medicine and the goods of, of medical treatments, uh, there's a way in which we can cling too fervently to them and not do our own work of preparing for death. So then, so there's this kind of over-medicalization of dying that I've experienced again and again and again in the hospital. And then that is also related to questions my patients have asked me. 
existential questions, you might say, these questions of human existence. Why am I here? What is this life all about? I just got this terrible diagnosis. I know I'm dying. What is the meaning of life? These sorts of questions patients have brought time and time again into my primary care clinical office. And so through opportunities to talk with them and engage them in sort of, you know, interrogations of their own beliefs and what they read and what matters to them, I, I came around to, to combining those two, kind of the the very practical, the how do we use technology along with maybe the spiritual or the existential. And that's what led to this book. So long answer. Oh, that's great. Now you mentioned just a, a few seconds ago, the number of patients that you've had that have sort of lingered on indefinitely when death was certain, but they were unwilling to let go. And in a way you start your book out that way too. You said right at the outset, that dying well requires the recovery of a sense of finitude. And you know, in many ways, this is a fairly countercultural assertion. I'm thinking about a lot of well-known tech tycoons who've inf- invested literally billions of dollars trying to crack or even hack the code for our aging and our mortality uh, or to freeze their brains so that in some way they can live on forever. So I'm, in in many ways, that kind of approach is even valorized or admired, you know, this sense of bravado of knowing no limits. So I'm curious why you believe that the realization of our limits is the first and necessary step to dying well. Yeah, great question. So, so this, the the book that we're sort of talking about today was preceded by an academic book that is a collection of chapters where I, I got a group of really smart colleagues together to think through this question of, of what it would mean to die well. And part of that was looking at these various iterations over 500 years of the Ars Moriendi and of the, this body of literature, art of dying body of literature. And what was common to all of those iterations of these handbooks on dying well were two things, actually. This recognition, acknowledgement of human finitude and the role of community in helping an individual prepare for death. So so why do we need finitude? Because if we're going to do any work, we need to have the goal in mind, right? So any project we undertake, we need to know what the end is of that project. And so if the project is, is very matter-of-factly preparing well to die, then we need to at least be able to name that we will die one day. And I'll tell you, it amazes me the lengths to which we go as a society to avoid that. And so it's not just the tech tycoons, you know, and the, the cryopreservation, these sort of freezing brains and freezing bodies and these super cold tanks in the hope that one day we'll have a cure. So it's not just that, but it's sort of all of the ways that we are constantly remaking ourselves as individuals. And certainly the privilege and the affluence of the West underscores this, the, you know, the, the new look, the new wardrobe, the new car, the, the new, new, new right? It's, it's a constant, a constant remaking ourselves in a way to avoid thinking about our end, right? And so that's why if we're going to be talking very practically about how do we live well in order to die well, 
And then we need to be able to name that we're dying well. And I'll just say just briefly, many people are aware of the the, the work on death and dying, I think from the 1970s, uh, where they talk about the five stages of grief and that you have to come, you know, the last stage of grief is coming to accept death. And I, I think specifically for Christians, right? Our theology, the Christian theology about death is, is one of a paradox in many ways, right? Death, death is overcome. That is what Christians celebrate on Easter Sunday. But death still has a sting. It still is bitter. It hurts. It rips a, a hole in the fabric of our lives. And so we hold intention, or those who adhere to the Christian theology hold intention, this idea that death has a sting, but also is ultimately overcome. So we need, but we need to start, so we don't need to accept death, but we need to start by acknowledging our finitude. And, and that's why I kind of put that as the first plank in, in trying to revive an art of dying. Well, your second plank you just alluded to, and that is the embrace of community. And it seems like there is a paradox there as well, in that in many ways, suffering and death is, is an isolating process. You know, pain tends to isolate us from others. We don't want to go out. We don't have the energy to do that. You know, death itself is a solitary journey by its very nature. And so if the embrace of community is, is a, another vital plank in the Ars Moriendi to dying well, it means that others are going to have to surround the dying person. And I think almost all of us on this call most likely will have to care for someone who is dying before, before we die ourselves. So I wonder just both philosophically, but also practically you know, as a doctor, how do we provide the encouragement and the relational care to bring community to someone who is dying so that they can die well? Yeah. So, so I, I, I tend to imagine three different levels of community, especially for my patients. The first level is that, that most intimate, that most intimate group. So, so an exercise that I give to my patients sometimes is this you know, you're healthy now. That's great. I'm so glad. So glad. But let's just say you get to the point where you're dying and you're actually dying in bed. Who do you want to be surrounding you at your deathbed? And how are you investing in those relationships now? So that's sort of that most, that most intimate ring of community, if you will. I, I gave a talk once and someone said to me, well, I know who I want to be at my deathbed. I just really can't stand the people. And so could I wait until, you know, later in life to try to in, invest in those relationships? And, and of course, right, it's kind of a silly question, but think about it, right? If we invest in those relationships now, not only will they be stronger at the end of our lives, but they'll be so much richer now. And for, for the time that we have remaining, we'll, we'll be able to enjoy those relationships so much more. The, the give and take, right, of relationships. So, so family, whatever, close community. Sometimes people say to me, look, I'm, I'm kind of a loner. I like to be alone. There's one person, maybe two people that I would, I would put in that category. That's great. 
you know, this, we're not talking about the whole village. There's this wonderful book of, that's a review of a thousand years of practices of dying in the West by a Frenchman, actually, Philippe Aries. I know there are people on this call from France, so I'm sure I just butchered his name, but he has a wonderful review of practices of dying. And he talks about how there was a time in the middle ages when if a, if a person was dying, the village would be summoned and literally all the members of the village would parade past the deathbed. I mean, that's overkill, right? We, we don't want to go back to that. At the same time, identifying one or two people, investing in those relationships, absolutely critical. But then the, the community moves out from there, right? So, so, so some of my patients are very involved in religious communities or the senior center or, you know, a bridge club or something like that. So there's sort of, and in that next layer out, these might not be the people you, you want really in your business when you're dying, but, but they are there to support. They'll bring meals, they'll help give rides. Uh, and some of this, our kind of safety net system in the US has helped to provide. So we have things like Meals on Wheels and, and different programs that will help meet the needs of older folks, particularly older folks, but also people with various kinds of impairments. Uh, and then the, the third level of community can often be, especially people with chronic medical diagnoses, that, that community of the healthcare team, which often increasingly includes not only the doctors and nurses, but also social workers and chaplains and care managers and kind of a whole team of people to help the person with this, this chronic or, or life-threatening illness to navigate living at home or getting to appointments and things like that. So there, there are these different levels of community that we can think of and, and invest in. And I, I think that's, again, the, the second most fundamental task of preparing to live well in order to die well. So you mentioned the parade of French villagers around the person who had just died. And while we may not go, want to go back to you know, a, a parade around the dying, you do talk about the importance of ritual, you know, to help in dying well. And, you know, it, it seems like there's already a number of rituals, you know, surrounding, certainly around a health care and the pronunciation of death, but also around funerals and the care of the dying. But you've called for a reinvigoration of ritual. What rituals do you think we need to reinvigorate in order to encourage living and dying well? So I have a chapter on ritual and it is not at all exhaustive, but in that chapter, and I'll say my, the, the book is not a religious book. It is a book that is meant, I wrote for my patients uh, in order to help a broad audience mm -hmm. think about their finitude and anticipate death and prepare. Having said that, I have a chapter on questions of spirituality and religion. And I have a chapter on ritual, which pulls from not only secular rituals of the hospital, but also rituals from the, the Western religious traditions, particularly from Christianity and Judaism. And what's so fascinating about ritual is that it's, well, for one, the work has been done. So there's often this sense that in this modern era of having to reinvent ourselves and recreate everything that we also need to write our own funerals, meaning we have to write the whole liturgy or we have to come up with all the, you know, we have to sort of figure it all out on ourselves. That, that work has been done and been done across religious and cultural traditions and is rich and deep and sort of, you know, attended to over thousands of years. So, so there's so much from which we can draw. But in the chapter in particular, I highlight a few things that 
were very provocative for me. So, so people often ask me, you know, do we, should we return to an open casket, you know, sort of across the board so that people are forced to kind of see death? And that's a, a longer conversation. It has to do with whether you embalm and how quickly you bury, all of which, you know, embalming is a pretty American thing. It's, there's so much to say about embalming. I'll leave that. But, but prior to getting to sort of the open casket and the visitation, what about the dead body? So within Jewish communities, there's a, a tradition of the Hevra Kadisha, which is groups of volunteers from within the Jewish community who agree to be trained, especially in preparing the dead body for burial, which in the Jewish tradition tends to happen within 24 hours. And it has to do, the, the, the ritual itself includes three different levels of washing the body. The first level of washing the body is as if the body were still alive. So they use warm water and they only uncover the part of the body that they're washing. And what was so fascinating to me when I was learning about this, this ritual is called Tahara, and I describe it in the book, is that the members of the Jewish community of the Hebra Kadisha would actually sing from the Hebrew book, Song of Songs. They would sing the text to the body, a love song to the body as they were washing it. I mean, think about the intimacy of that, the care of, of attending to the body of one's own community in anticipation of laying that body to its final rest. I mean, it's breathtaking, but you know, what do we do? I mean, most commonly in the US, you know, grandma dies and we call the undertaker and we call the funeral home. And, and, and I'm not, listen, I don't, I've never, I've never done this with a body, but it was for me when I was learning about Tahara, it was a challenge to me personally to think about how could we reimagine the care of, of a dead body, even within our, our own communities? What is this wisdom? What are these traditions that we've lost, these rituals that have been written down and, and, and clarified? It's there for us, right? And what does ritual do? It helps us navigate uncharted waters. So it gives us the kind of the, the foundation on which to stand when nothing is making sense. And of course, death does that. Death disrupts everything. So anyway, the, you know, the, again, I'm not I'm not speaking poorly of, of funeral homes or funeral directors at all. Please don't misunderstand me. That is such important work. But I also am cha personally challenged to think about how we as communities, right, whether that's religious communities or family units could again care for care for our own dying and dead. So I'll leave it at that. No, no, that's great. You know, I wanted to ask you about one of the not just assertions, but in some ways an assumption of the book of the connection between living well and dying well. And you've said several times in the book that to die well one needs to to live well. But one can think of certain examples, you know, both in real life, but also in literature, where perhaps the person had a life that was, was full of unmet potential or compromises or corruptions, and, and yet had a death that seemed to be somewhat redemptive. You know, one example of this is the character of Sidney Carton in Tale of Two Cities, who, you know, a bit of a, a wasted life, but a sacrificial and very redemptive death, you know, that, you know, really evocative of a Christ figure. And so I guess I just wanted to get your thoughts on, 
is that link between living well and dying well in your view inviolate or are there ways where one can die well even if one has been disappointed in their life that's such a great question and especially on good friday right because i mean the story that comes to mind i haven't read a tale for two cities in two cities in so long but the story that comes to mind for me is the thief on the cross uh, so, you know, for those who don't know, Christ is crucified, uh, which is what we remember on Good Friday, and he is hanging on a cross between two men who were criminals. And one turns to him and, and essentially says, you know, you're the son of God. And yeah, I am, I put my allegiance with you. Here we are, we're hanging, you know, we're hanging on the cross, we're dying, but you are the one in whom I put my faith and my trust. And that, and Christ says to the thief, today you will be with me in paradise. Now theologians, and I'm sure some on this call, have all different ways of understanding that and explaining that. But the idea is that for however corrupted this man's life was, in his dying moment, right, there is redemption. And that, I think, is really the the story, the narrative that undergirds the Christian story, which is that there's always the possibility of redemption. Now, having said that, whenever we're setting out to do a task, we're setting out on a pilgrimage, and even if that pilgrimage is ultimately to die well, the more we can prepare, I think the better off we'll be. And certainly, you know, you could say, well, the thief on the cross or this character in A Tale of Two Cities, neither one had much occasion to live a very good life. And, and certainly that may be true, but, but the possibility still remained for dying well. So it's not, that, it's not that it's impossible, but certainly with more preparation, it, you know, it, it often goes better. So just in our brief conversation, we've talked about finitude and community and ritual, but it seems like we, we need to talk about the big Easter question. What does love have to do with it? How does love change, either inform or transform our conception of dying well? There are a lot, a lot of things to say about that. I, I'll Maybe I'll preface it by saying in the going back to the earliest iterations of the Ars Moriendi, these handbooks on the preparation for death, there were five virtues that were commonly espoused to help one die well. And they were in contrast to kind of five temptations to dying poorly, which is the way the writers of the books, the booklets put it. But one of the virtues was that the virtue of patience is a consolation to the temptation to impatience, the sense that I just want to die and get it over with. I'm just sick of this suffering. I just want to be done with it. And, and you know, the Christian scriptures talk about how love is patient. And the patience, the way that we bear our suffering, the way that we bear our infirmity is, is best done in the context of community that can help bear those burdens for us. And that is all undergirded by love. The theologian, Alan Verhey, who was at Duke, died a few years ago. He has written a book on the theology of the Ars Moriendi. And he talks about how this virtue of patience really is best understood as a virtue of love. So whether patience or love, certainly within the context of community, that, that is foundational and 
you know, paves the way toward both living and dying better. Lydia, thank you so much. Well, thank you so much to everyone. I'll just say it has been a tremendous and tremendously difficult year for everyone across the globe. And there's a temptation to think that as hopefully the pandemic starts to wind down and the vaccines become more available, that those of us who are, you know, make it to the other side are, are home free. But mortality is 100%. And if it's not pandemic, it'll be something else. And we're not a people without hope. So I encourage you to take this season to think well and think hard about dying well, and then to work backwards toward your living, to examine how you might live well today and for all of the days that remain. Thanks again. Thanks so much, Lydia. Thank you to all of you for joining us. Thank you for listening to this episode in our series on living wisely and well. Be sure to subscribe to Trinity Forum Conversations to make sure you don't miss any future episodes. And if you're enjoying these, please leave us a review. Visit our website at ttf.org for more information and show notes from this episode, as well as resources such as our Trinity Forum readings and videos of our past events.